All right, you guys. Hey, sorry to bother you, but it's uh, fundraising time again at the Libertarian Institute. And that's me and the legendary Sheldon Richmond, the great Kyle Anselone, our news editor. And I've just promoted Keith Knight up to managing editor of the site. He is a great, dedicated, anarcho-capitalist, libertarian, and uh, podcast host and writer. And we'll be expecting great things from him. I also went ahead and hired our old friend, longtime friend, Will Porter, and relatively new voice, but a very talented and intelligent one, Connor Freeman, as staff at the Libertarian Institute as well. So they will now be joining those I just already mentioned, but also, of course, our uh, podcasters, Tommy Salmons and Patrick McFarlane as well. So uh, check out all the great stuff. we got a bunch of great writers Norman Singleton has been writing for us lately. And, of course, we're always running the great Matt Agarist from Free Thought Project. Our brilliant Australian friend, Kim Robinson, is uh, writing for us. And Lori Calhoun, as always. And all the great stuff at libertarianinstitute.org. So donate today. And then I can continue to pay my guys. And we can continue to bring you this great institution and its websites and all its upcoming books and uh, all the great shows we're doing and all of this stuff. So check it out, libertarianinstitute.org slash donate. Thanks very much, y'all. For Pacifica Radio, March 27th, 2022, I'm Scott Horton. This is Anti-War Radio. All right, y'all, welcome to the show. It is Anti-War Radio. I'm your host, Scott Horton. I'm the editorial director of Antiwar.com, and I'm the author of Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. You can find my full interview archive, more than 5,600 of them now, going back to 2003, at scotthorton.org and at youtube.com slash scotthortonshow. And you can follow me on Twitter, at scotthortonshow. All right, introducing our guest, it's Antiwar.com news editor, Dave DeCamp. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you doing? I'm good, Scott. Thanks for having me back on. Thank you very much for joining us. Now, uh, we're about one month into the war here, and we have a lot to catch up on. So, uh, first of all, can you give us sort of a thumbnail sketch of your understanding of the war in East Ukraine as it sits now? The Russians are where and have gotten how far, and then we'll get into the politics of the thing in a minute, I guess. Yeah, so um, if you look at, you know, the maps of the Russian invasion that, you know, you've seen in the media, it, it's it's clear that Russia is focusing its assault just on eastern Ukraine. You know, they've launched strikes in western Ukraine, but it's clearly focused on, you know, east of the Dnieper River and with a big focus on Mariupol, the, sea, the city on the Sea of Azov. Um, you know, that's what we hear a lot about in the news. That's pretty much under siege by Russia. There's a lot of strikes there. Um, and that's the stronghold of the Azov Battalion, um, which is one of the openly, you know, neo-Nazi uh, militias that's part of the Ukrainian National Guard now. You know, and this is in the in the Donbass. So, you know, Putin, part of his justification for the invasion was that he was going to denazify Ukraine, whatever that means. It's not clear exactly, but... You know, we kind of expected the the assault 
in areas where they're with Azov and other, you know, far right, uh, that term has kind of lost its meaning these days. But, you know, the the real, you know, ultra nationalists and the and the Nazi groups. So we expected this attack of Mariupol to be kind of more brutal. And, and it seems like it is. And then there's been strikes in Kiev. Um, there hasn't been a full assault on the city, um, even though, you know, we've seen all this news about this big convoy of tanks that was headed that way. Uh, it seems like that might have just been like a distraction or maybe a way to draw out Ukrainian forces on the northeast in Kharkiv. There's been strikes there. They've taken Kherson, which is a city, it's a port city on the Dnepr River that connects to the to the Black Sea. But I think that they're right now they're still still somewhat contested. But yeah, that's basically you know my understanding of it. We've talked before, and you know what we're doing in the news section antiwar.com. We're not totally focusing on all the battle stuff because it's so dynamic and it's tough to know what to believe. There's a lot of propaganda. You know, Ukraine has an interest in exaggerating. Uh, civilian casualties. Again, there's, you know, groups like Azov that, you know, they might be interested in staging things. You know, they want NATO and U.S. intervention. So we kind of are focusing more on the, the aspect of covering the, you know, what how the U.S. and NATO are responding and the assistance to Ukraine that's fueling the war even more. But yeah, from what I see, and, you know, we, we see this, <laughs> you see this uh, every U.S. official and just about every major media outlet that Russia is having a much harder time than they expected. Ukraine's putting up a fierce resistance. But I'm not sure if that's really true. Again, it's hard to know. But from what we can see here, it's a pretty limited campaign. They haven't unleashed the full strength of their air force. And they're not, you know, indiscriminately bombing these cities. They're setting up these civilian corridors. so People can get out. You know, to me, just my understanding of it from what I've seen, it seems like, you know, Putin has no intention right now of taking out the government in Kiev, of taking out Zelensky and conquering Ukraine. I, I just don't see that that is the plan for now. Um, they're in negotiations with Ukraine. But something that came up this week, actually, from Will Arkin in, in Newsweek, who you've interviewed before, he actually quoted a senior analyst in the Defense Intelligence Agency, in the Pentagon's intelligence agency, basically saying what I said, you know, that it, it's clear that the destruction could be a lot worse. What Russia is doing right now is pretty limited. They're not indiscriminately bombing. Of course, civilians are dying because that's the nature of war. If they're going to strike any targets in cities, whether they're government or military buildings, you know, civilians are going to be killed. That's what happens. Uh, but it still seems to be uh, pretty limited. And Arkin put this in pretty good perspective. <clears throat> um so in the first 24 days of the invasion, he said Russia flew less sorties and and dropped and deployed less weapons than the than the U.S. did in the first day of the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Um, so that really says a lot, I think. Um, and right now, again, civilian casualties. It's tough to know. Uh, and Russia, they have an interest in downplaying how many of their soldiers have been killed. I know that the U.N. number they're saying a thousand. Ca- uh, civilians have been killed, but Russia hasn't put out their casualty numbers in a while. I think they did in the, in the first week or two. They said they lost about 500 soldiers, so we don't know where we're at now. But you see all these claims. You know, NATO said like seven to 15,000 Russian soldiers have died, but I don't think that that's true. And uh, But these are all things, you know, we're, we're going to learn eventually. Um, and just right now, there's just so much information out there that it's tough to kind of figure out exactly the situation uh, on the ground there. Yeah. They want us to believe that 15,000 Russian soldiers have been killed. 
in what major set piece battle did they lose entire divisions and we didn't hear about it? Yeah, that's yeah, that's my question too. <laughs> I, I don't know. That's just silly. Anyway, it is uh, pretty bad. I, it sounds about right when you say a thousand civilians verified killed so far in the onslaught. I mean, that sounds like it's probably about right. And you mentioned about the lack of air power being called in by the Russians here and what it says. I'm not sure what it says. Is that a public relations decision on the part of Vladimir Putin to not call in heavy bombers to take out Ukrainian fixed positions in the east of the country? I guess he thought it would be easy anyway without doing that. And and for the public relations hit, he would take for the obviously higher casualties that would have happened there at the very beginning. Yeah, I mean, well, if you look at it and also this is another interesting aspect of it. Um, the Pentagon has, has said this, that you know, the majority of the Russian strikes are being launched from Russian, either from planes in Russian airspace or from missiles in, inside Russia. So and and they kind of are portraying this as like, oh, Ukraine has tougher air defenses than they thought. And we're giving them all these stinger missiles and stuff. So the skies over Ukraine are dangerous for the Russians. But I don't think that's really it. I, I think we are seeing this limited campaign. And I'm just guessing here, but I, I think it's because of the negotiations and what Russia's demands are right now, which is not regime change. So the demands that the, you know they've made public are that they want Ukraine to recognize Crimea as Russian territory, to kind of to give up on the idea that it'll ever be returned to Ukraine. They want to they want them to recognize the independence of the Donetsk and Luhansk uh, republics in the Donbass, where there's been a war going on for eight years since the U.S. Baku in 2014. They declared independence and the war started there. And again, they want, you know, the denazification, which we don't know exactly what the specifics are for that. And they want them to demilitarize or shrink their military to some extent. And of course, you know, one of the most important ones is for Ukraine to be neutral and uh, kind of give up on its intent to ever join NATO. So, you know, if those are the demands and the reason that I believe that that's what Russia is pushing because we've seen reports come out of the negotiations now it's kind of interesting naftali bennett the israeli prime minister has kind of is trying to be a mediator in this whole thing and he he flew and met with putin and he's been talking to Zelensky and putin and israeli officials in a few media outlets i saw this report in the jerusalem post i think the times of israel axios quoted israeli officials you know unnamed sources saying that the deal that Putin has put forward is like tough for Zelensky to accept, but it's not as you know harsh as they thought it would be, and it allows Ukraine to maintain its sovereignty. So, if that's true, then I think that explains why we're seeing the limited campaign because they're just not looking to conquer the country, and they probably don't want to make. I mean, you know, this is already uh, probably too late at this point, but they probably don't want a lot of the you know Russian-speaking people in the east eastern part of Ukraine to kind of turn on to, you know, rally around Kiev and Zelensky. Um, but, you know, when you're under siege, like some people are, then you know, that's probably already happened. But yeah, I really think it's it's that. It just comes down to that Russia seems like they would rather settle this through negotiations right now, at least. Yeah, well, <laughs> which is one way of putting it. I mean, they are occupying the other guy's territory and holding a gun to their head. But then oh, again, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. as you say, their demands are completely realistic and reasonable neutrality. Of course, I saw someone on uh, the Twitters today saying, yeah, well, that's what Henry Kissinger said a few years ago. We ought to 
strike a deal that defines the Ukrainians' position as neutral like Austria was during the Cold War. So, in other words, based on an exact model that we have from previous history, a couple of countries west of there back during the last Cold War. But anyway, um, and then Crimea, which, of course, has always belonged to Russia and has, again, for the last, uh, you know, almost decade. And clearly that ship has sailed. I mean, give me a break. And then the Donbass, again, the so-called independence of these regions under Russian so-called protection is a fait accompli. There's nothing anybody can do about that now. And that's really been true also for the last eight years. So as far as just recognizing the fact of that, you know what? Maybe Biden shouldn't have overthrown the government there in 2014 and we wouldn't have this problem. But that's that. And as far as the Nazis, I mean, if they're going to insist that the Ukrainian government disarm the Azov Battalion and right sector and ADAR and the other Nazi groups, C-14, the other Nazi groups there, they're going to have a civil war on their hands. And those guys are about a fifth of the military or something at this point. So that'll be interesting to see. And then as far as the demilitarization, I don't think they're going to be able to get the Ukrainians to agree to disarm or to cease accepting Western weapons. I don't know about that. Uh, I don't think you can get the Americans to stop sending them weapons. So anyway, and that's where we get up against the cause of this problem, really being, just going back a few weeks, the Americans' refusal to deal with the Russians in any kind of rational way, and their insistence that the Ukrainians also refuse to negotiate. And you see all these trial balloons where Zelensky says, yeah, maybe we shouldn't join NATO after all. If they're not going to come to our rescue, what good are they? Well, geez, he could have said that a few weeks ago, except that the Biden government was telling him to not say that, to just hang in there. Maybe you'll join one day still or whatever it was. Uh, What do you think is the explanation for that? For what Zelensky's saying about NATO, I mean... Yeah, and about you know, yeah, the Americans encouraging him to take this intransigent stance. Yeah. Well, I mean, it really does seem like that the, the U.S., you know, is kind of hell-bent on funding a proxy war, on um, funding an insurgency, you know, against Russia to kind of uh, just hurt Putin. Um, because, you know, at this point, you know, one of the reasons why... I didn't think, you know, this was going to happen. I think the last time I was on your show, I was kind of downplaying the whole thing back in January was that, you know, I thought if, if the real, uh, if there was a real chance of this war that the U S would have at least given Russia enough concessions to stop it or try to stop it. But the whole time they refused to entertain the idea of giving Russia a written guarantee that, that Ukraine won't ever join NATO. And now, you know, a month into this, you know, horrific war, they're still it does they're still not showing any sign of kind of pushing Ukraine to say don't join NATO instead what they're doing is sending them just a ton of weapons i mean biden just announced an 800 million dollar arms package for ukraine that includes the stinger missiles the javelin anti tank missiles and the armed drones um switchblade drones i think they're called they're kind of smaller yeah. like kamikaze drones yeah. they're working to get them all this soviet era missile defense you know kind of more <clears throat> You know, advanced stuff than just the shoulder-fired missiles. Hey, y'all, Scott here. Let me tell you about Roberts & Roberts Brokerage, Inc. Who knew? 
Artificial bank credit expansion leads to price inflation and terribly distorted markets. If you've got any savings left at all, you need to protect them. You need to put some, at least, into precious metals. Well, Roberts and Roberts can set you up with the best deals on silver, gold, platinum, and palladium. And they've been doing this since 1977. Hey, if you just need some sound advice about sound money, they're there for you too. Call Tim Fry and the guys at 800-874-9760. That's 800-874-9760. Or check them out at rrbi.co. That's rrbi.co. You'll be glad you did. Reading about this in the New York Times, it's amazing the way that they say, hey, look, we couldn't give them planes. Because, of course, a plane could get to Moscow and the Russians might see that as a real threat. And they even say in there, even just the New York Times reporter just reports this flat fact correctly. All this makes America a belligerent in the war. This is all an act of war against Russia. But, you know, the CIA has determined that if they calibrate the level of support to just highly sophisticated shoulder-fired anti-aircraft missiles by the thousands that, nah, they won't do anything. As long as we don't give them planes, the Ukrainians, to fly against the Russians, then we're pretty sure we can do anything short of that. And then what's their gamble? They're gambling with all of our lives. And they talk about this like they're playing chess with Saddam Hussein, who really can't do a damn thing, you know? Yeah, it's inter- it's weird the way that they kind of laid out what they think are red lines. You know, sending them fighter jets is is more being involved in the war than, you know, sending them thousands and thousands of, of these shoulder-fired missiles and the drones. And they're giving them sharing intelligence, like, you know, real-time targeting intelligence that some reports say. So, I mean, how yeah. more involved in the war can you be than if you intervene? directly um so and listen and, and you know I, what i saw i'm sure these are your links that i followed here at news.antiwar.com dave but um, i saw where in the new york times there were questioned about the arms that were sending and in nbc talking about the intelligence sharing in both cases the question being just how complicit in the war does this make us and does this legally make us co-belligerents and could it lead to a war with Russia? And in all those cases, they answer yes to all the former questions. But at the end, they say, nah, we'll just keep it low enough level that it doesn't have consequences for us. Which, by the way, is exactly what they said in December about all the weapons they were sending in then. They said in the New York Times that it's carefully calibrated to deter Russia from invading it's never enough to actually provoke them into invading. And here we are now. Saying, so well, yeah. it's enough to make them die, but it's definitely not enough to make them kill us back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, that was another thing in the, there's a recent report from Yahoo News that the CIA was training Ukrainians in the Donbass on the front line of the war since 2014. Uh, right, Zach you know, CIA- Dorfman in Yahoo News. Yeah, CIA paramilitary groups. And in there was kind of how they had this conversation, like, what is too far with Russia? And they, one official, I think it was a Trump-era official, said that, oh, we think Russia speaks the language of proxy wars, like we have a precedent, and I guess referring to Afghanistan and support for the Mujahideen. It's yeah, like, and Syria, too, where we supported the Mujahideen against them as well. 
Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, they determined that that wasn't an, enough to provoke Russia. But then here we are today, and all of this intervention, the CIA being there, I'm sure, and the weapons, just all of it, and of course the backing the coup really is the main factor in, in Russia invading. So, you know, they were wrong then. So what are they? Are they going to play it right this time by sending all these weapons? Like, what if if Russia decides to bomb a, a shipment of NATO weapons that's going into Ukraine from Poland, like right on the border or something? I mean, when and then when does it cross a line? And then when does that cross the line for the U.S. and NATO to get involved? Even though right. Biden and Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, they've said repeatedly that they're not going to send troops into Ukraine to fight right. Russia. They're not going to fight Russia directly, but if you keep going down this road, like at what point is, is there going to be enough of a spark to really start something here? Well, and that just um, goes to show too, that in their mind, Ukraine is not a vital interest. I mean, if the Russians were rolling tanks across Germany right now, we would be at nuclear war. Nobody thinks America's going to give up Germany to Russian domination. Not like that could happen in another hundred years, but anyway, no one thinks that America would let that happen. But Ukraine yeah, we'll send you some shoulder-fired missiles. So in other words, they admit right there up front that this is not something that they're willing to spend one American life on. But there's no ceiling on the number of Ukrainian lives that they're willing to spend on this same mission. Yeah. And, you know, going back to kind of the diplomacy part of it and the negotiations, um, yesterday there was a report in the Washington Post that Milley, uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Lloyd Austin, the Secretary of Defense have tried to set up calls with uh, Russia's defense minister and the head of the Russian uh, armed forces and, and that they declined multiple times. But in that report uh, was it also said Anthony Blinken, who's supposed to be, you know, America's top diplomat, hasn't even tried to talk to Lavrov, the R Russian foreign minister, since the invasion started. Isn't this I, I'm sorry, but there's so much going on, Dave. I have to say this might be the greatest scandal in American history. <laughs> what do you mean the Secretary of State is not on the phone with the Russian foreign minister at all during this war? No, I know things got higher heights of tension during the Cold War. But this is the most extreme criminal negligence. I mean, this is like George Bush twiddling his thumbs on September the 10th right here. Mm -hmm. How could Blinken not be in Geneva? And how could that, is it because TV didn't decide for us? How is this not the narrative of all 300 million Americans, Blinken to Geneva or mm -hmm. resign. That's it. How are we having any other conversation than that right now in this country? Yeah, it seems like people, the Americans don't understand kind of the risk here uh, of what this can turn into. Uh, people don't seem to be afraid of nuclear war anymore. Um, but, you know, and again, that was another reason why I, I didn't, I was doubtful that this would really turn into a full-blown war like this was because uh leading up to the invasion blinken and lavrov wendy sherman and uh lavrov's deputy they were all talking like almost constantly it felt like every week and biden and putin so i thought somewhere in there there was like some backdoor right deals hey, and the know, current director of the cia William Burns was the author of the Nyet Means Nyet memo to Condoleezza Rice, where he explains to her the facts of life on February the 1st, 2008, that, boy, that Sergei Lavrov was serious when I met with him today. We're pushing our luck in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So that was reason to believe that, yeah, he might help guide Joe Biden through this. Isn't that his job? Apparently not. Apparently his job is try to recreate 1980s Afghanistan again. Yeah, that's what it seems like. Um, and they keep saying that. And that's the important part here, right, is uh, James Stratavis, who would have been Secretary of Defense if Hillary Clinton had won, the former admiral, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO, was saying outright, he says, I love this quote, he says, look, we don't know the first thing about how to defeat an insurgency, I admit that, but we sure know how to back one, like we did in Afghanistan and in Syria. So one, can you believe they got the word Afghanistan in their mouth? After we're just leaving only half a year ago, after 20 years bogged down there, dealing with the blowback from the last time they did this, they only lost the Afghan war six months ago, Dave. And they're talking about, yeah, we should do that again. I mean, to them, to them, but don't worry, it won't blow back on us. Not like it did last time. And in Syria, they want to invoke Syria with I think a bare minimum of half a million dead, the rise of the Bin Ladenite Caliphate and Iraq War Three to destroy it again, this absolute catastrophe on the order of Iraq War Two, and they go, yeah, we could do that. We're so smart and good at that. Us guys on the Obama team now back in power. I mean, I don't know what to say. They're at least as evil as Vladimir Putin or any of America's enemies anywhere in the world. They're monsters, our government. Yeah, especially, you know, when you consider that they're not willing to fight for Ukraine, but they're just willing to, you know, flood them with weapons. Why, If they're not willing to, to actually defend Ukraine, why aren't they, uh, you know, kind of pushing for a diplomatic solution instead of just fueling the war? Right. There's clearly that motivation behind it is to, you know, bleed Russia. Well, and of course, they're in no position to fight for Ukraine. I mean, what are they going to do? They're going to transfer our army to far eastern Europe through Germany and Slovakia to go field a land, yeah, yeah. Uh, an armored division or 10 to to keep Russia out of their own little Canada there? Are they going to sail all our uh, navy through the Bosporus straight up into the Black Sea? And we're going to have a big naval battle with the Black Sea fleet. But we're going to avoid breaking out H-bombs during all of this. It's completely crazy. America's in no position to defend Ukraine whatsoever. Um, yeah, and I think one thing that's important for people to, your listeners, I'm sure understand this, but I feel like we have to tell more people is that, you know, the no-fly zone that Zelensky is pushing and some hawks like Adam Kinzinger and in the U.S. are calling for, you know, that means war with Russia. Like, there's no way around it and to enforce a no-fly zone in over Ukraine, they have to shoot down Russian planes and bomb, you know, uh, surface to air missiles that are inside Russia. It's war with Russia. It's World War Three. It could be nuclear Armageddon. And they're disguising that, you know, there's been like protests for a no fly zone. There's I saw one with my own eyes in Austin. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. And listen, really? I mean, I know I see this, too. I mean, people just think it's a magic wish. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And um, these guys act like, yeah, no, nah, don't worry. The world will just do what I say <laughs> or something. Yeah, yeah. I think we really have to hammer that point into people. There were some polls done, you know, do you support a no-fly zone over Ukraine? I forget the percentage, but um, I think it was CBS News that did this one. It was just over 50% of Americans said, yeah, we do. And then when they told them what it meant, the number dropped down. 
like in the 30s, um, which is still too high. <laughs> but there was another AP poll today that said uh, Americans think Biden needs to be tougher on Russia, which, you know, what does that mean? How much tougher can he get besides going to war? You know, with these sanctions, they're, they're trying to, you know, intentionally trying to destroy Russia's economy, which isn't going to stop Putin from bombing Ukraine. You know, he's all factored all these all this stuff into his decision to invade. He knew he was going to face these sanctions. You know, they're preparing for it. Yeah, they're definitely taking a big hit right now, but they've been prepared. And it's not Putin and his inner circle that's going to suffer. It's regular, like regular people in Russia. It's Americans, you know, who are facing record high inflation and gas prices. It's people all over the world. It's people in countries like Yemen that are, uh, you know, rely on, you know, food imports from places like Ukraine and Russia to survive, to, you know, live another day. And, and these are all the people that are going to suffer because of, uh, you know, Biden is choosing this path. Yeah. And now listen, I'm sorry uh, to finish up here, Dave, can you please talk a little bit about the press conference with Ned Price from the state department that you covered the other day, where he's essentially gloating about America's unwillingness to negotiate an early end to this war. Yeah. Yeah. So this was uh Earlier this week, Ned Price was asked about the negotiations that the U.S. is pushing Zelensky. And, you know, he said something like Zelensky has made it clear that he's open to a diplomatic solution. But as long as it doesn't compromise the core principles at the heart of this war. And he said, you know, he went on to say that the war is bigger than Russia and Ukraine. It's about, you know, universal principles that a country can choose how it aligns itself. Basically saying that this war is about. The fact that Ukraine, the door to NATO is going to be open to Ukraine, even though they're not really ever going to join. And then this is another line from Price and Gensaki and all these spokespeople. This is the line coming from the Biden administration when they are asked, are you involved in the negotiations? Are you looking for a diplomatic solution? They say, oh, well, the, the role we can play, you know, the most effectively is by sending more weapons into Ukraine and sanctioning Russia to hurt their economy, to yeah. give Ukraine, you know, leverage. And then, so that tells me that, no, they're not involved at all. They could be, it signals that they're discouraging Zelensky and part of all these new weapons that they keep promising, you know, they just promised, I think more today, I have to catch up on everything, but I mean, it just keeps coming. That's right. Uh, and listen, people just do your homework, type in Ukraine arms and then insurgency and see how much this is about not defeating Russia in war, but bogging them down and extending one. It's as ruthless as it gets. And I'm sorry we're out of time. That is the great Dave DeCamp. He is news editor at antiwar.com. Thank you, Dave. Thanks, Scott. All right, you guys. And that has been Anti-War Radio for this morning. I'm your host, Scott Horton. Thanks very much for listening. Look me up at antiwar.com, at scotthorton.org, and at youtube.com slash Show. And I'm here every Sunday morning from 8.30 to 9 on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. See you next week.